0: This is Phil Guest, and I'd like to welcome you to this new episode of Behind Startup Lines, the podcast that ventures deep into the world of entrepreneurship, offering you frontline insights from those who have walked the path before you. Today we're joined by Gary Mansell, a seasoned professional with a remarkable 40-year journey in general management, buying, negotiation, e-sourcing, supply chain management, marketing and sales. As you'll hear, Gary wears many hats. He's a public speaker, author, entrepreneur, non-exec director, and angel investor with a wealth of knowledge in building businesses, sales, procurement, entrepreneurship, and leadership. In this episode, we dive deep into several critical topics. We'll explore the art of working with procurement, a vital skill for startups aiming to collaborate with large corporations. Gary's extensive experience in this arena equips him to offer unique strategies for startups to navigate these crucial business relationships. We'll also dive into the world of angel investment. As a successful founder himself who transitioned from a corporate executive to an entrepreneur and then an entrepreneur, Gary offers a rare perspective on what it takes to attract angel investors and cultivate productive, long-lasting partnerships. Lastly, we'll discuss the entrepreneurial golden rules from his books. Expect to cover a wealth of practical advice, tips and strategies that Gary has honed over his extensive career, all valuable takeaways for any aspiring or established entrepreneur. This episode is yet another masterclass in entrepreneurship, so tune in as we uncover the lessons and insights from Gary, a true connoisseur of the business world. Gary, uh, welcome to Behind Startup Lines. It's great to have you join me today. Thank you. You're you're very welcome. Gary, I thought we'd kick off with you uh, just giving us a brief introduction of your career, and then we'll sort of touch on some of the topics that we're going to cover in this discussion today, because I've been really looking forward to this. You're an expert not only in startups and helping businesses grow, but you also have a really interesting background in, in the area of procurement that I'd love to explore today. But why don't you introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Okay, well, uh, that should be relatively easy. Uh, I I spent about 20 years, first of all, in the corporate world, predominantly with Mars Incorporated, where I basically was working in procurement for most of that time, along with some other things. But the the last 10 or 15 years of my career was all about procurement in Mars. In 1999, I basically took some of the stuff we have been doing in Mars uh, in the area of logistics purchasing and built one of the first Uh, online freight marketplaces, basically, a company called Freight Traders, uh, which I led um, for, oh, until 2006, when I actually merged that business with a Swedish startup working in the area of, well, the best way of putting it is is optimized purchasing, optimized procurement. They had some very, very clever software, a bunch of guys who came out of Uppsala University which is like the MIT of of Sweden. Um, The chair professor of math and computing has since become one of my closest friends. And I basically saw that business um, after it had been working for a while. I laughingly say it had software that humans couldn't use because it was built by a bunch of very, very bright academics and everything was on one page. So we we merged the two businesses, um, transitioned across and we transformed that into a sourcing optimization business that eventually sold to Cooper Software in 2016, 2017. And Cooper Software at the time were, and still are, uh, or they were, uh, a Silicon Valley unicorn. They've subsequently been bought, uh, and they're, they're back in private hands now. Um, so basically, my career has been the corporate world. And then from 1999 through to 2016, has been entrepreneurial. So basically building a couple of software businesses and exiting from those. And then since 2017, I've really been working as as an angel investor. So looking at businesses that I think will be interesting, um, putting some of my money into them, in some cases sitting on their boards as well. Um, I I do some work as a chair and a non-executive director of uh, a few businesses, Um, written a couple of books, and I do a fair amount of public speaking as well, talking about entrepreneurship and leadership and, and how you build and sell businesses and form
0: teams and things of that nature. So that's really a potted history of what I've been up to. Brilliant. And that's why I'm so keen to talk to you, because obviously behind startup lines is all about the kind of hard yards of building businesses uh, and having to learn on the fly. And you've done it both as an entrepreneur, business builder. An advisor and now investor and of course you've written a couple of books in it and we're going to explore your latest book um, shortly when when we get into the detail of it so really really pleased to have you and um, looking forward to a great conversation. It should be fun. Let's start then by diving into the thorny world of procurement. Um, Now love them or hate them, procurement are an important part certainly of of any big organisation um, and we should talk about what their role is within that organization and why they exist and why you're likely to come across them. But the context of us talking about procurement, of course, is if you are a new company and you have a groundbreaking solution that even a big company may want, when you approach them, when you get the interest from your uh, your initial stakeholders there, that perhaps they'll buy it, you will invariably come across this team called procurement which put their fear of God into most startup founders. Who the hell are these people, Gary? What are they there to do? Are they there just to make our deals impossible? No. no.
1: Procurement people in, in big corporations are there to generate value. That's what they're really there to do. And, and the procurement organization will sit with the strategy of the business. So, for example, if if a business is very, very focused on ESG – then procurement's agenda will be ESG as well. And it isn't just about getting the lowest price. I mean, that's that's the old days of procurement. That's that's 20 years ago where the, the whole issue was let's beat them up, get the lowest price we possibly can and not care about them. Pretty much every big corporate now cares desperately about its suppliers and it needs to get closer and closer and know more and more about its suppliers. They will make you compete on price, no doubt of that at all, because remember, they're competing in their own worlds. You know, just as Mars, my old company, used to compete with Nestle, and we would want to buy better than Nestle, it was about doing the things that are right to generate the value and, and add to the bottom line of a business. And it isn't the bottom line, it's just not about money, it's about all the other things that go with it. So, you know, the procurement team may put the fear of God in you. In reality, you know, when you're buying from a big corporate, you're generally not going to get a decision maker or a single decision maker. It's going to be a committee decision of some type, a, you know, cooperative yeah. decision. And really what you have to do as a salesperson when you're selling into a corporate is recognize who the decision makers are and lobby them and create advocates inside that business. So that when, you know, most, most of the actual selling happens when you're not there, quite frankly, it's the conversations that happen inside the big corporates
0: that talk about whether they're going to buy that particular good or service that you're selling. Okay. So tell us a bit about how procurement people are measured then. I mean, any good sales process understands what the buyer is dealing with. And as you rightly said, in dealing with large organizations, corporations, you're going to have a committee of people who are involved in making the decision. Maybe there's one ultimate person who signs off on the deal, but there are lots of people who influence the deal. So let's talk about procurement in terms of how they're measured in a modern day. How are they judged? You talk about them adding value. Clearly, effect to the bottom line is an easy one to measure. But how are these guys and girls being judged within their organization if they're any good? Well, I mean, they will be judged on the price points they hit. There's
1: no doubt of that. Right. I mean, whatever you say, they are always judged on the perceived value and the actual value they're generating, uh, and the actual prices
0: they pay against the budgeted prices they pay, yeah, you will always have the conversations when so can i can I just- exp- dive a little bit deeper into that then, so that idea that is it in the world of procurement that somebody has a target that is the form of however much we decide we might want to buy, you've got to deliver a reduction of x. To, to show value? Is that one way in which procurement people are measured and their contribution to the company? Well, I, I think they're actually measured now on hitting budget rather than delivering a lower-than-budget
1: number because, right. in reality, when you're business planning, you've got to have some surety. So, you know, is it really, really clever to set a budget of, you know, 100000 and come in at 60000 Truthfully, the answer to that is no. Because the business has set its pricing based upon the, the numbers you've given them. Right. And so, therefore, if you get that pricing wrong in terms of your budgets and the business makes bad decisions, like, for example, puts its prices up and the competitors then beat them on price, that can be a problem for procurement. Procurement have caused that issue, you know? Right. So, it's about actually hitting your budget and explaining the variances to that budget, you know? Geopolitical things can happen. Oil shocks can happen. Energy shocks can happen. Everybody then struggles. Yeah. But at the same time, there can be windfalls as well. You know, a a new thing comes onto the market, which is cheaper and operates and works just as effectively. And so therefore, you'll get those windfalls. And it's about being able to explain the variations and telegraph them. Good buyers know their marketplace. They know what's coming. And truthfully, good procurement people actually know the market better than the individual salespeople because salespeople struggle to find out what the competitors are doing. They struggle to find out what competitors' prices are. Procurement people know them because they're talking to them every day. So they know their supply base, they know what their budgets are, and they know that they need to hit them. And that's what you need to help procurement people do. If you can reduce prices well, that's a benefit. But it's about surety of supply Consistency, security of supply chain, which is a big thing nowadays, of
0: course, and being able to actually deliver against your promises. Great, I'll make a note of that. Security of supply chain—that's a really important one. Um, so the way you describe procurement there is established sectors that procurement experts understand well, like buyers of um, working for. Uh, supermarkets buying food, perhaps you're, or, or clothing or what have you. you, you know that sector well, you're a specialist in that. But often when we're talking about perhaps software or new tools to solve problems for other people, which procurement are involved in. So I've done some of these in the last year, I've been negotiating with big global banks on bringing uh, AI solutions into the organization. Those procurement people clearly don't know about software, they don't know about AI. Great if you're a specialist in one area, then you've got a very clear view of how do I help them hit the budget. But what if these people just don't know your space, um, and they're making decisions to make on pricing and delivery when really they haven't got in the depth of understanding? I mean, I, I know that role. You've come across that. How do you deal with it? Well, you mean how do you deal with it as a salesperson of that of that solution? Yeah, as the as the startup who's got the interest of. Uh, a sponsor within this corporate, who says, "Yeah, and it could be. Could, give you an example. It could be a finance system, yeah, it, or a, a particular software that helps a part of the business, one part of it. And someone's gone, you know, I need this solution because we've got a problem here. And procurement are tasked with checking the value of what they should be paying for it, right? But they don't know the debt. They don't know the sector. Okay. Well, the the way you do that is by by helping the
1: person who you're selling to." and they may not be in procurement, become an advocate for your business. And, yeah. and really, you do that in a couple of ways. You do that by providing them the information they they need to convince others. Yeah, and, and I would challenge to some degree the fact that the procurement people don't know because part of the other job in procurement is keeping ahead of the marketplace and looking at the research, what's going on.
0: Um, but, yeah, I, I get your point. It is a time where, where procurement… But, that, but that's impossible to do. Yeah, impossible to do. When you've got so many software and technologies, they can't possibly stay on all of that, particularly during this period of transformation. And and that's why
1: it's important that you become the knowledge leader. right? And that's the whole issue within, particularly in a software business or, or some, where, you, where you're providing a solution that has never existed. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a real example. Trade Extensions, the last company that I was a, a big shareholder of and uh, the CEO of, we were actually... We had the worst job in the world. We were selling procurement software to procurement people. You would never choose to do that. Let's be honest. Yeah. And and it was software that, in theory, could replace them. Yeah. It could actually automate the processes. Um, so, yeah, it's like a double whammy. But the reality is what we needed to do was actually educate the companies educate the people educate the procurement people educate the buyers inside the companies that said how they could deploy this software what it would do and how it would be used and it becomes a long sell you know to become a knowledge leader isn't something you do in three months it's something that takes you two years three years to do so you know a startup in those kind of areas has to expect they're going to have a really long cycle time for their first sales and to to become a knowledge leader you've got to freely give information away and not worry about your competitors. You know, I I used to get absolutely livid at people who would turn around, you know, and I was a buyer, and they would put information they wanted to give me behind a firewall or behind a a paywall or behind a sign up for this information. Give me your details. Because 99% of the time, I'd probably not be interested, and I'd get a load of spam, yeah? So my view is really just put it out there, be very open, be truthful and actually share your knowledge you don't need to give away state secrets yeah. but share your knowledge and make yourself in the marketplace the people that want to talk to you and the procurement people from those businesses yeah even the finance companies you know the, the the banks they will actually start coming to you and asking questions about what your solution can do and what its path is and what the what the growth path is and what the development path is for that And then you actually start to get decent knowledge because they're the sector experts. You're working in this, you're building things that should be supplying their need. Um, So it's not quick, but my advice is always get yourself to the position where you become the knowledge leader in the field and then give away the things that are that knowledge. Educate your customer, educate your potential customer and it will become a logical conclusion they'll want to buy from you because you're the people who do it. You know, it, it's like—I mean, I, I know this is international, but I always laughingly say, "You know, I'm old enough to remember when nobody in the UK ever vacuumed their house. They always they always Hoovered their house, and Hoover yes, was the true. brand name of the biggest-selling yeah. vacuum cleaner." Yeah, yeah. Um, and we used to have this thing. You know, we we, we, we would really love to say that you know pe- people don't people don't buy something they they trade it, they they, they trade exit because the company was called Trade Extensions, yeah? Um, we never quite got there, but we did get most of the big corporates using the software and coming back to us to talk about how we could take it on further and how we could change the way that buying works. So knowledge leadership, I think, is the real key and building advocates inside a business is the other thing that you need. So that the, the person who wants the usual software, wants the usual service, wants the usual goods, rave about it inside their own
0: business so this is really about a mind shift in a uh, mindset shift even within t- when you talk to procurement if you see them as an as a barrier if you see them as the enemy you know, that's just going to get people's hackles up if you see them as a validation that this is a real opportunity and an opportunity to convince or reinforce why this is such a good purchase through the way you describe educating them on the market they'll respond well to it is that the advice here yeah
1: absolutely that that really is is, is my my piece of advice they they're not there to stop things happening bad procurement people are there to stop things happening yeah but good people good procurement people are there to add value to their business and the way they do that is by working with the best suppliers i mean one of the things we used to do is we would literally have a situation that turn around and help the advocates inside the business go to their senior leaders and say, if we did this, this is what would happen. So we, you know, we do a piece of business value engineering, even to the point of saying, with the public information we have about you, if you do this and you save this amount of money, this is what will go onto your bottom line. This is what it would have an impact on your share price. You know, right. you, you you could be as 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 tough as that, almost, you know, as as
0: um, uh,
1: yeah,
0: have that that amount of chutzpah. Yeah, yeah. It depends how how big an impact or important part you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're if you're really affecting that bottom line, I mean, with the banks and the deals we were doing, we worked out this was there was one big global bank that had to save, I think, a billion, and we'd worked out that by automating part of the process, they could reduce cost by hundred million. And we did the business case for it, yeah. Exactly. But even, but even with that, Gary, even with that, we still had a real fight to get the value that we wanted because um, they were, yeah, they probably didn't have the budget in reality for what we were doing. It was something they had to carve out, even though they'd sell out, save a hundred million. And 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 that brings on to another great point where you, you talk about value
1: there, about the value they would get, yeah, know? and. Um... Yeah, that that's also been the 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 bane of my life at times in terms of so many software vendors sit there and you know i, I talk to them and they go, "Well, you know we saved these guys a hundred million, and they still only paid a hundred thousand for the software. Yeah. Why didn't we get something more than that
0: you know um, yeah. so that, yeah, that's that's always a fun conversation to have. Well, well, let's just explore a few of those then, if you don't mind. Let's go into a few scenarios where you've got a situation like that, where you're making such a material impact to the organisation, um, and it's not translating into value back to you. What, what can you do as a startup to maybe not balance it, but get in a better position? the The, the biggest way I see
1: people do it, truthfully, is agreeing gain share deals. Um, but they come with problems as well. Gain share. Could you explain that? Yeah. Well, well gain share is typically, I mean, you use the procurement piece as an example. If we said to people, um, use our software and use it on this particular buying exercise, and there might be a $100 million worth of, of spend in that buying exercise, um, we'll take a percentage of the savings you make rather than you know, a fixed fee. Um very often you would do a a setup fee and then a percentage of the savings. So that's that's a gain share deal. So they make a gain or a saving and you get a share of that saving. Now there are some real problems that can occur around that. Truthfully, there's there's the issue of identifying what the actual saving is. Yeah. When you're a startup, you generally need the money up front, yeah. And you don't get it until the, the the deal has been done. And very often you won't get it until the savings have actually been delivered back into the company. So it might be a year later. Yeah? So game shares can be quite tough to actually manage in terms of cash flow. They can also be quite tough in terms of the relationship. Because you now, coming back to these famous procurement people, if you turn around and somebody's spending a hundred million right now and you save them 30 million. And it has happened. I've seen examples of where we've 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 helped them cut their prices by a third by using the marketplace um, and by changing some things. Uh, That's quite a big impact on a buyer, on a procurement person. Yeah, inside their business, it's you know there is the the, the thing that gets leveled at what the hell have you been doing? Why have we spent all this money previously? Yeah. And sometimes People will go, I'll agree again, Share, expecting that it won't yield, that it will be in their favor as a procurement person. And actually, although they save the money, they get a little bit of egg put on them um, for those who feel that way. And when they actually have to pass the check across, you start getting the conversations that say, Well, that was only like a you know, five hundred hours work for you and I'm giving you a cheque for ten million quid. Right,
0: right. Yeah. I mean that's the problem here, isn't it? Because it's like moving the goalposts afterwards and people people move around a lot in corporates. I mean, the people that did the deal may well not be there. Exactly. Either as the manager in the department or even the procurement person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can have a
1: contract in place that says you pay it, etc. But you know, and and the point you make about people moving around is, you know, if you if you have a bad relationship with somebody working in Nestle, they may well turn up in Mars next week. Yeah, yeah, they may well turn up in Unilever or or in P and G, um, all the companies that you want to be working with. Um, so gain shares have their place. I think they they should be more biased towards the fixed price and a little bit of gain share so that you're willing to take some of the risk or actually if you if you're really successful you should be saying well this software is this price you've done your own costing you've worked out what your pricing should be you've worked out how you can make a decent margin out of that not ridiculous but a decent margin out of it and a decent profit for your business or a reduced be cost or it. whatever yeah you know yeah i mean the fact is you know the reason these guys can save millions of dollars is because they have revenues of millions of dollars and they spend millions of dollars or billions of dollars. And you're not that business. You may be one day, but you're not as a startup. And so sitting there and moaning the fact that they saved 30 million and all you got was 200,000. Well, that's life. Yeah. You know, what did you expect to get 10 million? The answer is no. No, and yeah, they're not going to pay 10 million for that piece of software. Well, not unless you're SAP or Oracle or people like that. And, you know, most, most startups I know aren't there yet. Yeah, so yeah. you have to be realistic and, and, and actually say the reason they actually saved that money and created that money is because they're that big. The thing you need to do is make sure they then use you again
0: and again and again and more and more and more of you. So that actually helps you scale and build your business. It sounds a little bit like uh, a a gain share deal could be a tactic for negotiating. If you get stuck on a value uh, price, you could say, okay, well, if we're not going to pay X, maybe you can agree to a gain share deal. Because I think a lot of companies don't like those deals because they're really hard to budget. You know, We don't know what that share is really going to be at the end of the day. We can't measure it. But as a tactic, it could be good. It could be say, okay, if you can't pay me what I think it's worth... Then give me a share of the upside. So it's a tactic.
1: Yeah, and and as you say, it, it, it tactically it, it can work. It can work in a negotiation. Sometimes it will work as part of the first trial, yeah, right. the first use of a product, the first use of a goods or services or whatever. Um, but I don't think it's a long-term sustainable model. I really don't, because as you rightly say, and, and I said at the start people like to budget they like to have surety yeah you did yeah you know
0: yeah. it's a case of you know we're going to write this big check <laughs> well let's let's explore another scenario then um which is you get that first year's deal but to get that deal you have to put a very keen price in right and that's a tough negotiation in it's first right so you get year 1 and you do that deal on the proviso that future years the price is going to go up but, of course, it's not written in stone. It's not written in the contract. It's, it's a tacit uh, um, implication that you're going to increase the price. Then comes a renewal, and you submit your renewal quote, which is obviously a much higher price. And you get a response from procurement saying, what the hell is this? How do you deal with that? How do you respond to that? How do you manage that? And how do you get to where you need to get to, having already hopefully demonstrated the value in year one? Well, well, first of all, I'll, I'll be honest, I very rarely gave special prices for first years.
1: Um, I'd rather turn around and walk away to a large number of companies. You, you didn't with your business. You thought, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. Because of exactly the problems you talk about. Um, yeah, I always turn around to, to startups that I work with now and say, remember here, the first price that you agree with a company, irrespective of your deals and irrespective of your expectations, that's the one that sets all your negotiations for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Because their circumstances may have changed. You may have actually given them an idea that, you know, they would save this amount or it would deliver this, this product, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, sometimes buyers will come back to you and go, well, it didn't actually deliver exactly what you said. It didn't perform as well as you said it would do. It's good. But you know something? It's not worth, to me, the money you thought you were going to get paid. And you're into a negotiation, and the negotiation starts at the first price you gave them. Yeah? So that's why
0: I think you... it, It could be as well that whatever you agreed to deliver hasn't had a chance to be delivered, because this is the other side of the equation. The customer might be really bad at deploying the technology or the product and even though they said, yeah, we're going to have it up and, and running in six months, 12 months later, you're only halfway through the deployment. So they've got another lever there to say, well, we didn't use it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You, you are really in their hands. And that's that's where you are even if you've got to the point where you've got the price you wanted. you know. But then at least it's a different conversation. You're starting from a, a higher base. You know, If you're starting from a lower base and – you know, you're starting at a point where you can't make money. And I've seen people try and do that. That's that's the path of madness. That's that's really, really bad for your business. And
0: I, I always but, try and But companies, people, Gary, companies have to take those deals, mate, don't they? I mean, sometimes, even if it's a real poor deal, it's a bit of money in. I mean, it's the logo that is as important, maybe, as the money, particularly when you're looking to raise funds, if you get a blue chip logo on your client well, list well that's a that's a classic example you see that's
1: where you can actually say i'll trade some of this for something else yeah right i mean if i can use your logo if you'll do references for me if you'll Day actually studies, act as a referee yeah. to other clients if you'll come and speak at some of the events for me yeah it, it's it's th- there's other things than money that are value to you that you can trade so it really is about negotiating hard and yet yeah, you're right sometimes you are in the situation where you go I will just survive. I mean, we very, very rarely traded money, if at all. But what we would trade is time, which, of course, is money. But we would, we would actually, to, to prevent things like those issues of deployment being delayed, we'd actually put our people into their business for a period of time. And we'd say, they're free. You've got 20 days of, of, of uh, effort here that will help you deploy this software and make it sticky and the nice thing is once they're inside that business they're seeing other opportunities as well so they then become salesmen inside that business so there's lots and lots of ways where you can still gain value and you just need to be creative about it but you know don't give away the crown jewels it's sometimes a bad deal is just that a bad deal and you shouldn't do it
0: yeah so let's um Imagine you have done it. Let's imagine you've set the price. The business has moved on. The business has got more customers, got more traction. The product's more proven. You've uh, been able to demonstrate value within the organization that bought it. And whatever that price delta is, it's just unacceptable to procurement. Unless, of course, procurement's first response to any increase is we're not paying that. I mean, that might be just a default. We (laughs) never accept the first offer from procurement. What could you do? Well,
1: you've always got the ultimate sanction, which is to say, I'm done. I'm not working with you.
0: Yeah. Should we say that? I mean, that's, I, that's if you one can reality. afford to walk away. Yeah, if you can afford to walk away. But is that something that you you get to a point where you go, well, I know the value. You know, if you can't meet it, we can't work.
1: But if you're if you're in the situation that you're losing money on a deal and you're going to continue to lose money on a deal, you have to be foolish to carry on doing it. Yeah. Yeah the thing you have to be very clear
0: about is having your 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 best alternative quite frankly what's your next best alternative to what you have already yeah exactly and it's it's your it or what's your next best affordable alternative
1: exactly though those those are the things that have to be in your mind when you're going through any negotiation you know what's my next best alternative i can do this or i can do this actually and it might be you end up going we can't do business at this level. Now, surprisingly, ha ha ha. Sometimes, when you genuinely get to that point, you can't do business at that level. You'll see a change. They will, they will turn around and go. Well, okay. So, what can you do? Yeah. yeah. Remember, it's it's a dance that you're playing here. Um, so, it really is about going into those negotiations, creating in your mind what the alternative scenarios are and recognising when you have to move and when you have to move both ways. And then getting creative about it. Things that are amazingly of little value to the company, to your customer, can be a massive value to you.
0: Yeah, And you look to trade those things as well. But there has to be that ultimate sanction. Yeah, That's a great piece of advice, trading value for money. Yeah, I
1: mean, there has to be that ultimate sanction. There has to be a point at which you turn around and say, we have to agree to disagree, we can't do business. Yeah. Because you can't carry on doing business and losing money.
0: At what point do you bring the uh, corporate sponsor, and by that I mean the person who's decided to bring you in or you'll have chosen you as a solution provider, at what point do you go back to them to say, we can't, we can't work anymore because we can't reach an apri- agreement on the price? Because they'll be pretty pissed if they can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you're doing it well, you never let them get out of it anyway.
1: You're talking to them all the time. Yeah. Um, and you're advising them what's going on inside their own business. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. You want to be in a situation where if if they are the corporate sponsor and procurement are separate, and, and nowadays things are getting much, much tighter in, in terms of corporations. But if you've still got that kind of structure, you need to maintain that relationship with your corporate sponsor at all times. You know, just give them stuff. Give them things that are interesting. Oh, you know, I saw in your annual report that you were doing this. Did you know about this? Yeah. And actually create some more value for them. Just keep on adding value. That's what account management's about. You know, a good account manager really does that. You know, the the, the clues in the job title, they manage an account, yeah, or several accounts, and they're actually adding value all the time to the corporate sponsors. The people who made the decision, the people who bought them in, and you're doing the same to the procurement people as well. You make yourself a really trusted partner who knows the marketplace and can talk about things
0: and just give stuff away freely. Well, that's an important function within startups this idea we call that customer success today, but the idea that someone's bought your product. Yeah. Uh, the value the long-term value is is retaining that customer and growing that customer being an indispensable uh, solution to that customer and the only way you do that it's software is not a fire and forget you know you don't put it out there and hope that it just you know takes care <laughs> of itself for the next 10 years you've got to work with the customer so one of the things that I've seen happen and and maybe more so prior to the crunch that many startups are f- feeling now in at the end of 2023 was this idea that customer success teams were being recruited earlier and, and experienced executives being recruited earlier because they were the ones going into the the Mars, the P&Gs, the Unilevers, and knew how to build those relationships. Is that something you would advocate for yes. early-stage companies?
1: Ab- absolutely. Customer success is, is the key. Yeah, because that's what gives you the repeat business. That's what gives you the retention. That's what gives you the repurchase. That's what gives you the... The, the spreading the software further into the business, if it's software or, or the service or the product or yeah. go into other areas of the business or yeah. or other geographies and things of that nature. You need to be in that business. You need to be close to them. You need to take the time and make the effort. It, you know, If you get to the point where you sell the software, then you roll off, Yep, then you're probably going to end up selling them shelfware in the end. It sits there, does almost nothing for them. And then some guy comes along in a year's time and make sure that you're out of that business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing as well. Yeah. If if you find that you have a great relationship with an advocate inside a business, you've got to see and look at their career path and see what's happening with them because they're going to move. So you don't want to be attached just to one person. You need to be spreading your, your tentacles inside that, that corporate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Um, and some really helpful tactics and scenarios there for startups to think about when they're talking to uh, to big corporates. One of the things that we touched on earlier, and I just wanted to get your view on it, is, is around pricing generally um, and the type of pricing that you use. You and I had talked before about the different pricing models um, and the challenge that I think startups have of putting a price on their solution, particularly in the early days. I mean, if there's a an adjacent competitor, you can obviously understand their pricing. But what's your advice to startups when they're thinking about pricing strategy? I mean, the first one is basically know their own costs.
1: Yeah. Right. I right. mean, that's, that's so fundamental, but so few do it and do it well. Yeah. And, and know your own costs, not just now, but how you're looking to scale the business. So, you know, what are my costs going to be in two years time? You know, it that's that's part of it. Knowing your cost, then you can actually say, I mean, if you've got competitors, that's great. You can look at what the market is bearing. The other one is then to say, Well, how much money do I need to make out of this? Or how much money am I looking to make out of this? So you can generate your margin and that will result eventually in your price point. Yep, right. Then you can test it with the marketplace. Where is it? You know, if you're talking to people and you're talking to them and saying, Well, the software is about to be delivered. Here's maybe the minimum viable product, if it's software or, or anything really. Um, this is what it is. This is what it does. This is what we're pricing it at. You may get people turn around and go, no, absolutely not. But the question then is, so what do you use now? How do you do this function that we're going to replace? How do you do this function? And what do you pay for that? So how can we work out a way to save you money, perhaps, in that area? But knowing your pricing, knowing your costs, that's how you do it. And it's an iterative circle, really. You you try it, you go back, you test it, you go back. You look at your own business, you go back until you get to the point whereby you can make a margin, where you can make enough money that makes this a viable business, and you have a path to grow it as well.
0: Right. Is that what, what people might refer to then as value-based pricing, um and there are other pricing strategies out there um what do you understand that to mean well well for me value based pricing really works best when you
1: actually do have a competitor i mean real value based pricing for me is, is is imagine you're you're making a new refrigerator yeah um and you want to come into the market as a brand new refrigerator manufacturer what you do then is you actually say well we we can make something which has got a bigger capacity with a smaller footprint for example inside a inside a kitchen um it will do the following it will, it will keep food fresh or you know whatever you, you want to do then you really do go to the consumers and you say how much would you pay for that function yeah and that's really what you then do test and that's true value based pricing to me you say well actually here I am compared these two refrigerators. Here's my competitor. Here's mine. This is what mine does extra. How much more is that worth to the consumer? So that's value. And, and, and that really, to me, is the only real example of value-based pricing. It's quite hard to do value-based pricing when you have no competitor, of course. That's where you have to do the thing I was talking about before, test the market iterator. How do,
0: yeah. How do you think that does work then in software?
1: For me, in, in software, it's about function. Yep. And it's about does this do this better? Does this do this quicker? Does this do this faster? Does it have things in it that you need right now that the your, com- your competitor doesn't? Yep, that's adding value. And 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 that software it's just the same really. Right. But yeah. I mean having said that, that doesn't mean to say you let your developers build whatever they like, you know, because quite frankly
0: if you do that then most of it won't get used. <laughs> And equally, you don't build everything that your sales team ask you to build because one client is demanding. Oh, absolutely not. That'd be the worst (laughs) idea. Right, right. So it's getting that balance right. Um, Pricing strategy is one of those areas that really doesn't get the the time it deserves. And considering it's one of the the most important levers for uh, business success, uh, I think I read somewhere that on average, businesses spend about six hours working on pricing strategy in total not during the lifetime, in total, uh, which is crazy. And when it comes to repricing, restructuring, repackaging, you really need to spend some time thinking about that. And it's not fixed because it will evolve. Um, pricing in year two will change significantly when the product is so different. You know, it's It works better. It's got new features, functionality, scale, all the things that you put into it, there's value there and you have to capture it. So repricing, repackaging, Certainly in early-stage companies, it's more of a fluid thing in the early days, but it's something that you've really just got to do uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, And and that's where value-based pricing comes into it and the other forms of pricing strategies. Yeah, I'd agree with you 100% there. I mean, it's
1: the the number of times I've actually spoken to startups that I work with or I know of or or are pitching, and I say, well, how did you get to your price point? And, And in effect they may use a lot of words, but they actually say, well, it's what we could get away with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of, oh, right, okay. Um,
0: well, that's an interesting basis. Yeah. Well, that's that's not a scalable business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, but, you know, there's a lot of that goes on, and, and it probably is testament to the six hours
0: total that we spend on pricing. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. Um, yeah. I mean, we're seeing certainly in software now the emergence of usage-based pricing as being something I mean this idea that you know you pay for what you actually use and I think that that's going to uh, become even more popular because this idea of my buying software uh, and never using it I did this so back in the early days of the internet uh, I was involved in buying co-location and server space when I worked in radio for Capital Radio Um, I knew nothing about this topic but I was tasked with negotiating enough bandwidth and server space for us and we bought I mean, I'm embarrassed to say it, but we 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 like overbought by a hundred in terms of the you know what we needed and obviously we paid an awful lot of money for and no one at the time really knew what well, how you're gonna price these things. Um but now you know that's crazy. Nowadays, of course, AWS is is great for usage based pricing because you can dial it up and dial it down. And I think we're gonna see more of that pricing model, uh certainly in software. You you use it, you pay for it. You don't use it, you dial it down absolutely the case I, I it's going to be the
1: model for the for, for the foreseeable future in my mind I mean we did the same in trade extensions we 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 used massive amounts of computing power for small times you know the particular pieces of software would use huge had a, had a huge call upon processing power um, and we used cloud computing for what it was we would actually have our 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 software sitting there on AWS um, and and, and other hosting providers. But we would actually buy some solvers that were some of the base code that we needed on a per-use basis. So when we ran out of capacity, we could seamlessly go out to the marketplace, use this, get the answers, bring it back, pay for it later.
0: Um, And that's more and more the case. It's use as you need. Yeah. Uh, we could do a whole podcast just on pricing strategy. Maybe that's for another day. But Easily. Really interesting to, uh, to dive into it. Let's shift the conversation now from procurement to your work as an angel investor. Um, you've obviously had success. You had an exit. You've made some of your money. You're reinvesting that back in entrepreneurs and, and great ideas now. Um, this podcast is really designed for early stage companies that are looking to get going with a particular focus on the commercial side of building the business. So that's why the conversation was, was great to have around procurement. But what are you seeing within um, very early stage companies looking to attract angel investment? And, and how can they do that effectively in the current climate?
1: Well, it's, it's certainly changed in the last couple of years. Um, there's no doubt of that, or, or the last three years, probably. Um, in, in so many ways. Valuations are down because there's less money available. Angel investors can now invest their money in banks, which are far more secure. Well, yeah, hopefully they're far more secure. Um, and, and other things rather than the very high-risk startup marketplace. So that does tend to mean that there's less angel money around and there's and there's lower valuations. What I say to people looking for angel investors is is don't do what some people do to me which is they hear I'm an angel investor and they find me on LinkedIn and throw me a pitch deck and I throw that straight in the bin. Yeah, it could be good, bad or indifferent, but I get lots of those and I never look at them, quite frankly. Um, You need, when you're looking at individual angels, to build a relationship with them, first of all, before you even ask them for money or ask them to invest. You need to follow them on LinkedIn, You need to see what their interests are. You need to see where they invest, what sectors they invest in. Because if you're clever about it, you really can read into it what people are looking for, yeah? And very often, they're very upfront. You know, I I talk about, I tend to invest in tech businesses, female-founded and led businesses. Um, So it's all there. It's all there to be found and make the connection and actually start talking and having dialogues with angels. Most of us, are not angels that sit by themselves in isolation. Most of us are in angel groups. You know, these, these groups that are, right. there's, there's loads of them in the UK. Throughout the world, there are loads of them. And basically, it's a group of high net worth individuals, family firms, early stage venture capital guys who sit down via these organizations and they rely on the organizations to curate the pitches that are put in front of them. And then they actually facilitate it. They find you the lead angels. So the angel groups generally work very well. Some are better than others. Um, Any you'd recommend? But you should be. Any I'd recommend. Um, well, uh, I'm I'm in. Uh, I'm in four. Yeah, um, I'm I'm a big fan of one in in Cambridge, which looks mainly at tech and pharma businesses, called the Cambridge Capital Group. There's one which is very big called the Angel Groups, and they're they're based in the north of England. Um, one which is worldwide and is very good and and has a lot of high net worth individuals attached to it is called the Kiretsu Forum, and one lot, that I've just joined and Kiuretsu, K E I R E T S U, Kiretsu Forum, yeah, um, and they're worldwide. They have chapters in in the major. Uh, trading centers of the world, basically. Um and one which is a bit smaller and I'm just uh attached to now is is based in Jersey, uh called investors Um so that's that's four that I've worked with and and I've worked with startups that have raised money from a number of others as well.
0: Um yeah you know, it's it's wrong to recommend any individual one I guess. Yeah that's good to um that's really helpful. anyone listening who wants access to angel investor uh communities then there's four really good ones there uh, to look into what does the i initial... mean just, you can
1: just google angel groups truthfully
0: yeah yeah well you've given them four to start with so thank you for that what does the first email look like if 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 i was looking for angel investment and i wanted to get in touch with you gary what's that initial contact look like and and is it an email to you that isn't obviously just saying here's my pitch deck what has it got to say for you to go? Okay, I'm willing to have a chat. And is that an email or is it some other form? It's it's very rarely
1: an email. Um, it's more likely to be a LinkedIn conversation, for example. Um, and it will be somebody I've probably had a dialogue with already, who's responded to some of the posts I've done, responded to some of the articles, read my books. Um, you know, basically, they've got to show that they know me by having built a relationship. And at that point, you know, it, it's, I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm very, I'm, you know, I know what they're really after. I see when yeah. they want to connect. They follow me first of all, then they connect and they, you know, they say they're raising for such and such. So at one point I'm waiting for them to say, right. here you go. I might even head that off at the pass and say, by the way, if you're looking at me investing in, in your business, I don't invest in that sector. But, you know, I may be able to help you in terms of people that do or i'll introduce you to the angel groups i'm a member of but it it can't it's, it's like any relationship any business relationship, any friendship really you know you basically got to build that relationship first of all if all you do is you say i know you're a member of these angel groups i'd like to be i'd like to actually pitch to them well at that point i'll go well here's their address email them and you'll go into the sausage machine Yeah, what you really want to do is get me on your side as an advocate that actually says to these angel groups, I've invested in this company. I think they're worthwhile. You'll still go through the sausage machine, but of course you've got a much better chance of going through it because I'm trusted, I'm credible, just like I listen to other members of the angel groups that I'm part of who bring deals to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, building it's building those relationships again, isn't it? Yeah. It's not a quick process. It's a long process because you
1: you have to differentiate yourself. You have to show that you've got something which is different from everybody else. I mean, there are thousands of people who look for angel investment every year, and very few of them get it.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, particularly in the traditional way that we've been using Sales development to do outreach to initiate that contact and the way in which we're using email. And we're overwhelmed now with those messages, whether it's LinkedIn connection requests, pitches, emails, anything that's digital communication is really not now getting the awareness or the bite that that it used to. And where I've come to the conclusion is that what's most effective for the work that I do is when I get an opportunity to stand up and talk to a group of people and share with them what is in effect part of my IP, my knowledge, my experience, um, share with that in a very authentic way. And I think what businesses have got to do now is they've got to find a way to do that. They've got to find a forum or a place where they can stand up and talk honestly about the problem they're they're solving. Because whenever I do that, Gary, and I'm sure you have this when you do your speaking uh, events, people listen to you and they go, this guy knows something about this topic. I need to talk to him. Absolutely and that case. is a very different start of a sales relationship, isn't it? It's because now we're on an even keel. You're going, hey, Phil, can yeah. you tell me more about what you talked about? So good example here for it is even this podcast. You know, Anyone watching this that thinks this content isn't worth it, this is a form of content that if you're a founder and you're watching it and thinking these guys know what they're talking about, it's a warm intro, isn't it? Rather than yes. you know, me showing up saying, hey, I'm Phil, I'm an expert. It's like, well, who the hell are you? Why should I trust you?
1: I think giving, I mean, echoing your example there, in trade extensions, we were all about procurement. That was our software. Yeah. And we used to run an annual conference, and the annual conference used to be a mix of clients and potential clients and people who were interested in procurement. Yeah. We didn't charge people to come there. They had to pay their own hotel and they had to pay their own airfares. But at the end of the day, we ran two-day conferences, and we would spend an hour talking about trade extensions we would spend the rest of the two days talking about the industry and having the best industry speakers come along, some of whom I paid, some of whom wanted to come along because it was a great conference and they wanted to be seen there and they wanted to share their knowledge. But it wasn't about jamming down their throats, this software does this, this does this, this does this, this does this, this does this. this." It was about this is what's happening in purchasing. This is what's happening in procurement. These are the trends. This is what's going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really important. Maybe we should do the behind startup lines conference one day Um, because it is, and it's great to just get people in a room and talk about these things, and it leads the business. So, what's the equivalent of doing that? They they
1: love the networking opportunities. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and it isn't about selling yourself; it's about making yourself the knowledge leader. That's what I keep on saying. In B two B, you need to be the knowledge leader, And, and in and in you know in consumer. Even in B 2 C,
0: knowledge leaders actually score.
1: You know, yeah. they they educate the public.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 having those conversations. Gary, thank you for for sharing those insights. Um, this I'm really enjoying the conversation here. Let's move on then to your new book because you've written a couple of books uh, and you've got a new book. Uh, that's out in the market now. Um, I've read it. I think it's fantastic. It's called 50 Golden Rules, The Beginner's Guide to Entrepreneurship. Tell us a bit about the book and then let's get into uh, really how founders can use that on their journey to building their business.
1: Well, the, the book came about really, I mean, it, as you say, it's the second one. The first one was kind of the, the, the benefits of my dogma during lockdown, that's that's what caused the first book to be written, quite frankly, and the fact that I was being asked lots and lots of questions by people starting their own companies, and the questions were always the same, or you know they were always of the same type. So I thought, oh, yeah. I'm just going to write this down, and and that's what I did, and suddenly it became a book. Um, the second one is a bit more structured. And it really takes you through some of the things or, or you know, the, the entrepreneurial journey of starting your business through to scaling it and, and potentially exiting it as well. Um, but it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's less than 300 pages. So it can't be everything. And I've written it so that people can dip into it. It's got multiple sections, but the idea is it's got those 50 golden rules. Um, yeah. And I've tried to structure it so that it's digestible, not with all the answers it's often a case of, okay, I get this, but I need to learn more about it. And I can go off and learn that. And I'm a big fan of generative AI. I mean, I've, I've got AI businesses, you know, I, I work in those and it's quite good. I, I found that you, you pick up something from my book, you cut and paste it, you drop it into chat GPT and say, expand on this. And you know, it does right. it pretty well, quite frankly. yeah, um, yeah. Um So yeah, I'm, I'm never scared of that kind of stuff, but it's, the, the book has been written for people who want to start a business. They, they've got that idea in front of them. They have this, this burning desire to be their own boss. <clears throat> and it's probably, it's not really built for the sole trader, although there's quite a lot in there that does apply to a sole trader as well. It's built for somebody who probably wants to build an SME, you know, a, a small or medium-sized enterprise, which is what most yeah. of the UK business industry is. You know, those businesses that are 10 to 50 to 100 people um, that that produce some tremendous stuff, and, and we all use them, even without knowing that we use them. And it's built in such a way, or the book's written in such a way, that you can use it a bit like a, a non-exec, and, and that's what really drove it, is I work as a non-exec on a couple of startups, or two or three startups, and this is really the things they come across through their lives. Yeah, right. This is talk to me about you know, how I market, how I do this, how I do that, how I scale, how I do – You know, it's, it's built into those sections really. And I've tried to make it digestible so that if somebody's got a problem at the time, they can just dip into the book and find the section about that problem, read a bit about it, and then do some more research and it just generates some ideas for them.
0: Yeah, it's highly digestible, the way in which you built it. I would suggest that, as you, you touched on there, there are two parts to the book. The first section is really a quick reference guide. It uh, doesn't go into too much detail, but it does sort of share some principles around models and frameworks that you can you can use. And I love your idea there of um, taking that and expanding on it. And one of the things that I'm looking at doing at the moment is I've now we're in the world of ChatGPT assistance. I've created an assistance for go-to-market planning, that's really built around the frameworks that I use to figure out, you know, what's our go to market strategy, what's our routes to market, what's emotions, all these different things that you've got to think of, but you could use your quick early references for each of the topics in that environment to to dive deeper. The second part of the book really explores a collection of tools and and provides a bit more detail around certain models and insights. Um, So that's where it gets in, I guess, to the practical side. Um, And it's a very Easy read. It's a very quick read, um, and it's a very useful reference book. Um, so, really good. Thank you for putting it together. Um, are there some golden rules that you have favourites, or you particularly will pick out when you're talking to early stage companies, saying these are these are really the important ones that you've got to focus on first?
1: Um, yeah, I I'm actually a big believer in in even small companies having strategies. You know, there's right. there's a lot to be said for let's wing it and see what happens, and then yeah. laughingly call it a pivot when you actually aren't pivoting, you're, you're actually just tweaking, yeah? Um, so I do believe in a strategy, and I believe in a business plan, but I don't believe they should be 50-page documents, you know? I, for a startup, you should write your strategy on a single page, yeah? Use the tools and techniques, you know, think about your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Those things were were really good. They still are really good. Yeah, yeah. But once you've got your strategy, then translate that into a business plan. Because until mm-hmm. you've written your business plan, you really can't go out to anybody and actually ask for money if you need to. If you're not bootstrapping yeah. this, yeah, yeah. And and these are flexible documents. You know, they're th- those are those are two rules that really are gold to me, because you need to sit there and you need to do them properly and you need to take the time and make the effort and expend the energy on them to get them right. Recognizing that they're probably going to be wrong. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I've got some, some golden rules about marketing and and things like if you're a B2B become the knowledge leader in your field. Right. If you're new, um, uh, we, we touched on it earlier, you know, the famous line about give stuff away. Don't yeah. put stuff behind behind you know subscriptions you know the, the old line of email marketing i i speak to a lot of people who tell me email marketing works for them and i ask them for the proof and then i never get it yeah um nowadays if you actually get yourself in a position where you where you do become the knowledge leader or you you use social media to find your customers, to get yourself into the position where you're really, really useful, where you where you are the guys who know this stuff. Well, you know something? You don't need their email addresses. You don't need to know where they live because they know where you live. They can Google you, yeah? And they'll get on to Google and they'll find you in a heartbeat. I mean, the, the other thing is you obviously have to have a web presence and make it professional make it consistent. And create your brand. You know, that's the other golden rule, which is your brand should be everything. And your brand right. should have its own life and its own entity. And you need to make sure that you're consistent with it. You know, I, I see companies with five different logos, same words, but five different logos. Or, you know, they, they seem to have no real purpose. Get your purpose across. You yeah, well, this is why right. we're here. This is what we do. So yeah, there's. I mean, you, you've read it. There's, there's all those things in there. Um, yeah, and I, I laughingly say both, both books really are full of my dogma.
0: Yeah, and and I'm I'm not right about everything. It's a great read and uh, definitely something that aspiring entrepreneurs, founders that are in the middle of all this should grab. Uh, put it on the shelf. Refer to it uh, as you go. Um, so thank you again for for putting it together. Um, I have a bit of a tradition to wrap up. Uh, on this podcast, Gary, and that's where I get to ask you a question related to building startups that has a military spin to it, hence the name behind Startup Lines. A couple of questions in that area. Should we go for it? Yeah, please do. Great. Okay. So question one, much like soldiers who must adapt to unexpected changes on the battlefield, businesses face disruption. Based on your experience, Gary, and the insights from your book, how should entrepreneurs pivot their strategies into response of unseen challenges that they come across? For me, the
1: first one or, or the first thing you do there is truly understand what the root cause of the change is. yeah if you use the military uh, provenance of it, um, it's if something happens on the battlefield that you weren't expecting. You need to find out what caused that. Yeah. Because only when you found out what's caused it can you do something about it. And I don't mean right. form a working group. And I don't mean forms you know 17 different committees about it. It's about get every piece of information you possibly can within a defined time period and set yourself a time period to respond. Yeah. And truthfully, I think Pareto's kind of right here. Use 20% of the time, you'll get 80% of the valuable information and act on that information. Right. And that's what you should be doing because if you stand still for too long, you will get shot and killed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you don't just knee jerk. You know, you need to take a breath.
0: You need to actually yeah. go, what now? What caused this? What am I going to do to respond? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that I'm keen on encouraging uh, the founders I work with is to, to have a review process. And uh, even when it comes to doing uh, deals, winning customers or not winning customers, having those deal reviews at the end of each uh, significant opportunity to look at, you know, what were we trying to achieve? What did we manage to achieve? What didn't work? And what are we going to do differently next time? Those are the kind of four areas that, that you can do. But you're right. When you're hit with something, invariably you will on a daily basis. It's taking stock, taking breath, gathering the information before making a decision. That's really how you cope with that, uh, dealing with that uncertainty.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of review processes because part of that review process is talking to the people who said no and trying to yeah. get to the real reason why they said no. and then actually, And then actually still being engaged with them afterwards. How is it going? Oh, by the way, yeah. I saw this. This might be of interest to you because you know, sure as eggs is eggs, they're going to want to test that marketplace again fairly soon.
0: Yeah, 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 great advice. Um, in your book, so second question in your book, you also talk about the importance of market research and understanding competition. Um, how important is this in the context of gathering intelligence for a startup, similar to? you know, a military unit assessing the situation before acting on a territory. How important is that intelligence gathering piece, do you think, uh, on the competition when you're early in the process of building a business?
1: I I think the first thing, in in terms of importance, one of the first things is actually finding out whether you've got any competitors and being brutally honest to yourself about whether they're a competitor. You know, I, I sat, I sit in angel groups and I end up with loads and loads of companies who in their pitch say we've got no competition and you know something I don't believe that ever generally I can sit in the in the meeting and google and find a competitor which really yeah. upsets them yeah yeah so you probably have got a competitor once you find out who your competitor is or what your competitor is you need to know why you're better than them yep and that's what you should be doing It's about why am I uniquely different to these people? Why is what I'm doing better? Because if it's it's not better, you're going to be a me too. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Does that answer the question?
0: Yeah. And I suppose it's a question of how obsessed you get over the competition. Because I think it's being aware of what they're doing and then getting too focused on them which then means you're obviously not playing to your strengths and your strategy if you're either a follower in that instance. So it's getting the balance right, isn't it? Not to, to spend too much time focusing on, but be aware of it.
1: I mean, we would, in in the startup side, built and, and led, we would probably spend no more than an hour a week of somebody's time looking at what the competition was doing, quite frankly. Right.
0: But um, I mean, you would do that time, you would dedicate that time, yeah, yeah
1: I mean you, you, you want to know what what's being said, what's what's happening, yeah, but other than that, you know, you're absolutely right. you can become obsessed with your competitors, and they can suddenly be controlling your business without even trying
0: to, yeah, yeah, I think the key here that you've touched on there is what makes you different. Um, and yeah that's the driver here you know why why you over anybody else? then we've got questions about why why you now for the customer um what's driving that decision, but what makes you different is clear the the challenge I have with with better is better subjective, and really you know we all have different yes. views on what's best better and bestest. But you get the idea. You know, different is something that we can look at and go, yeah, we're very distinctly different, or we solve the problem this way in a very different way to anybody else in the market, Uh, and that's certainly what I'm looking for in the companies I work with. Yeah,
1: yeah, different means you're creating an opportunity for somebody, generally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Last question, then. Um, So, in the military, special forces teams are highly trained to operate in hostile environments, drawing. Uh, parallels from the book but also from your experience what advice do you have to startups that are about assembling and leading a team that's capable of thriving in a high-pressured environment of an early stage business ah that's that's a really good question i I very rarely say that to be honest
1: because the founding team is all you know what i tend to invest in first of all is the founding team before even the business idea yeah and and for me a founding team has to have some key parts in it just like you know the SAS does they have key specialists in different areas even within their yeah. teams of four and six yeah. um yeah you know, the founder is usually the visionary the person who leads and has the vision and, and 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 actually convinces the others around him or her that this is going to be successful you know that that's, they buy into the founder's vision and idea But I also think the founder needs a foil. Another person who sits in their business, who actually looks across the table at the times and says to them, you know, you're being an idiot, don't you? Yeah. You actually need that that sense check. Somebody who's bright enough and smart enough and different enough that can actually go, whoa, hang on. Have we really thought about this? Then you need somebody who can deliver. Yeah. A deliverer is really important because generally the founder can't. The founder has the great ideas, but he's the worst person possible at delivering them. So you need somebody right. who's practical and delivers them. You, you need somebody who knows the numbers, yep, and actually right. understands the numbers and can do it. And, and you know, the foil is often the guy who understands the numbers. I've just found out. I mean, that that kind of tends to be the way that a good management accountant, and I had one of the best in the world, in my opinion, working with me in two businesses, he was my foil. And he could just right. raise an eyebrow and show me I was being an idiot, yeah. Right. Um, right. But you do need somebody who understands business numbers and can actually really keep you in, keep you instead, you know, keep keep you going, keep you thinking about what cash flow really means because cash is king in a startup. Yeah. A couple of others, you know, you, you need somebody who's 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 the business development manager, somebody who sells, who can sell, and I and also think you do need somebody who markets. And the sales right. and marketing person might be the same at the start, um, but I actually believe everybody has a role as a salesperson, but you need somebody who's responsible for taking those ideas, that delivery, these numbers, this money, and turning the marketing into actual sales. So, yeah. so for me, that's, that's the ideal founding team, and they need to have massive resilience you know you need to yep. look at people and go when this all goes wrong when it's really painful when it's friday and you've lost another sale yeah and you've only got four months of runway left what are you going to do yeah yeah and are you giving up or are you going to keep going and are you going to keep going at this so so for me that's the founding team is all that's that's what i look yeah. for first and foremost
0: yeah, it's that grit, isn't it? And that determination. So the idea that you need other people around you, even if not everyone's a founder, but they're part of that founding team. And then you have to have that grit. I think I, I heard, it's
1: the mixed skill set.
0: Yeah. I, I, I heard Sam Altman speaking and obviously we're just getting to the end of the debacle that was open AI and, and him getting fired and re, rehired. Um, and I, I heard a video that he talked about that the one defining, uh, factor that startup uh, founders have. And it was determination. It was that determination to actually see this through regardless of whatever life and and the world throws at you. And he was saying that that was the one point of difference of successful founders who went on to build really big businesses. And I like that idea of determination, because I think we can be hard workers and we can have grit. But determination means you have to keep going when you want to give up. You know, when you hit the ground again, you've got to pick yourself up. You've got to keep going. W- would you agree with that, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. It's It's got to be, and it, it, it's not just
1: you, you know, you, you, you can't eventually stand alone. You need to create that team. And, and as a leader, share that vision that enables them to be that determined, to actually say, we bought into this. We're not going to give in. We know this is the right thing to do. You know, I mean, we uh, th- give you a real example. The, the business that I'm invested in, that's really working very hard, is is a is a medical device for treating uterine fibroids, um, and preserving fertility in women. Uh, and it's, it's a massive problem, and the whole team there is so determined that we're going to improve the position of women's health that it's never going to fail. I mean, we're having some really tough times raising grant funding and stuff like that, but we're just finding ways to keep going and to keep that thing going because people believe enough. So determination, yeah,
0: I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, really and a strong sense of purpose as well, as you said there, you've got to have yeah. believe. I think that's those two go hand in hand. Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Behind Startup Lines. Where can people learn more about you? Obviously, there's the book, which is available on Amazon, both the books. How else can they get in touch with you? Where else can they learn about the great work that you're doing?
1: Well, they they can find me on LinkedIn. And Gary is spelt with two R's, probably because my mum couldn't spell. But it's Gary Mansell <laughs> on LinkedIn. And um, and the website is Garrymansell.com. Those are the two best places to find me.
0: Brilliant. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for a really enlightening conversation. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to see where you're going to take your business next. And and we, we're we getting to know each other. So I'm really looking forward to uh, working together in the future. Thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's been real fun, Phil. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, it's going be, to be good to see what the future brings for both of us. Thank you, mate.
0: And there we have it. Another great episode of Behind Startup Lines loaded with invaluable insights. A massive thank you to Gary Mansell for joining us today and dishing out wisdom from his 40 years in the business trenches. From mastering procurement to understanding the art of angel investing, his advice has been an absolute goldmine for entrepreneurs at any stage. Remember, the journey of an entrepreneur is a marathon, not a sprint, and every nugget of wisdom can be a game changer. Gary's experience and the golden rules from his books are essential tools for your entrepreneurial toolkit. If today's episode sparked new ideas or reinforced your business path, spread the wealth. Share the episode with your network. Let's empower more entrepreneurs with the knowledge and insights to navigate their ventures successfully. And keep an eye out for more episodes where we continue to dive deep into the real stories of startup success and the challenges they faced. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you heard, leave us a rating. Join me again for more unfiltered frontline entrepreneurship stories on Behind Startup Lines. Until next time, keep innovating, keep building, and let's keep the conversation going. This is your host, Phil Guest, signing off from Behind Startup Lines. Over and out.